Let's turn to the Word of God, please, in Romans chapter 10. In Romans chapter 10, the Apostle Paul is addressing Israel's unbelief. And then he comes in verse 5 to speak of the power of God's Word. Romans chapter 10, verse 5. Hear the living Word of the living God. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. The righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart you will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or you will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have all not obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation I will make you angry. Then Isaiah also is bold to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. May God bless to us the reading of his word. Let us bow as we come into his presence in prayer. Lord God, we humble ourselves before you this morning. We come to you as your creatures and we seek your face. We pray that you would be pleased to come among us and cause your face to shine upon us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you will be present with us this morning. For where we are gathered there, as our King and Head, you are present. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and that you would work through the word preached. We pray that you would lay hold of our hearts. We pray that you would revive those who are walking in a pattern of behavior that is not consistent with your word, yet they're here this morning. We pray that you would rebuke any who need to be rebuked, exhort those who need to be exhorted. And living God, for those 
who are still outside your kingdom, would you please, please come today as the word is preached throughout this day. And in saving power, may you bring new life in Jesus Christ. We commit ourselves to you. We have no want for or desire of routine or some form of religion that's just present. We desire you. We crave you. We long to know you as the Lord God Almighty. We crave your presence, Lord Jesus, and your work, Holy Spirit. We ask you to forgive us for our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. You'll have seen from the conference theme that it's named One Ambition, with a focus on embracing God's plan, the kind of simplicity that pleases the Lord Jesus. The task that I have been given this morning, and I'm delighted to take up, is simplicity in preaching. But there's another dimension to that assignment, and that is to speak on the issue of what difference does having confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture make to preaching? And I'm equally glad for that dimension because it is the ground out of which simplicity of preaching is born, nurtured, and grows. So here's how I'm going to approach what I have to say this morning. First, I'm going to make a few general comments about simplicity in preaching. Then I'm going to turn our attention to Romans chapter 10 and to see what that has to teach us about confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture as it impacts simplicity in preaching. First then, a few general comments about simplicity in preaching. Let me first define what I mean by simplicity, or to use the term used by our forefathers, plainness. Simplicity is not the same as being simplistic. I believe that there's a lot of simplistic preaching of the Word of God in the visible church today, and is doing serious damage. And I mean serious damage. Simplistic preaching is generated, among other things, by a lack of serious, careful, exegetical work in the Word of God. It's due to a want of discernment of both the understanding of God's Word and the people it seeks to instruct. There is within simplistic preaching an all-consuming desire to avoid the offense of the cross and to speak to human felt needs. It's a form of preaching, and I use that word reluctantly in terms of preaching, which typically produces material that is marked by complex verbiage and wholly unnecessary verbosity. Admittedly, it sounds good. It sounds as though it's dealing with the profound and difficult issues of the day, but it doesn't. And the reason why it doesn't is because it is devoid of the Word of God. It may use many numerous Christian phrases, but in reality, simplistic preaching glides over the real issues that plague the human heart, the human mind, and the human soul. It may be presented in a caring and gracious way, but it's wantingly shallow. It offers nothing. It titillates for the hour, but it leaves its trail, and it will not feed the soul. Ultimately, it's not only a fraud. It's a dangerous fraud to the soul of every hearer that sits under it. Simplicity in preaching, or simple preaching on the other hand, has no time for verbiage, nor word constructs designed to impress. The Assembly of Divines, which drew together the leading evangelicals in the United Kingdom and Ireland in the period 1643 to 1653, and they met in the Westminster Assembly, they produced a directory of worship 
And that directory worship says of preaching that its doctrine is to be expressed in clean terms. The preacher is to avoid obscure terms of art so that the meanest, what they mean by the meanest, is the poorest of intellect may understand. The goal of simplicity in preaching is not to leave the hearer thinking about the preacher, how clever he is, his eloquence or his oratory skill, but to bring the hearer to the living and active Word of God. The goal of simple preaching is without equivocation to declare the whole counsel of God and to do so in a way with the help of the Holy Spirit that will lead everyone hearing it into the presence of the Holy Lord God Almighty and to experience His life-changing communion with them. Simplicity in preaching is about exposing us to the two-aged sword. It's about doing so with a passionate desire that will give those who hear it the reality they have been pierced to the division of the soul and of the spirit and of the joints and of the marrow, that it will lead the hearer to discern and expose the thoughts and intentions of their heart that will lead to conviction, conversion, sanctification, through rebuke, through correction, through instruction, through edification, through training in righteousness. Simplicity in preaching is to bring us into the presence of God, that He may do in our hearts and our minds what he from all eternity has decreed he must do. How is simplicity in preaching attained? Well, simplistic preaching seeks to parade its learning and scholarly ability. But it always fails because it doesn't take us into the Word of God. Simplicity in preaching is hard work. It's not easy. It takes time to engage with the Word of God, to study it, to ask questions, to get to the kernel of the passage, to know the people, and to present oneself before God and submit oneself to the authority of God's Word. The preacher must submit himself to the Word of God before he submits his hearers to it. And that's never easy if you take it seriously. It's grounded in true, honest, scholarly, spiritual labor. It seeks to bring matters of real eternal consequence to the heart and soul, regardless of the age or intellect, so that it can be understood. Philip Henry, the 17th century preacher and diarist and the father of Matthew Henry, the famous biblical commentator, said at the commencement of his ministry, we study how to speak, that you can understand us. And I never think that I can speak plain enough when I'm speaking about souls and their salvation. Do we have any models for simplicity and preaching? Yes, we have. In his timeless book, the Christian ministry, Charles Bridges writes, Our Lord's discourses, without any of the artificial pomp of oratory and with the profusion of imagery, is a perfect model of simplicity. He was the teacher of the people according to their way and capacity. And of the Apostle Sermons, Bridges writes, They followed closely in his the steps. They felt themselves debtors to the unwise as well as to the wise they would neither sink below the dignity of their subject nor soar above the capacities of their people. The man called to preach can do no better than study the sermons of the Lord Jesus and the apostles to gain understanding of what is required of him as one called to preach with simplicity the good news of the gospel. 
in conclusion of this section on considering what simplicity of preaching is, how it's attained, and is there any models? I want to give you a quote from Alan Strange, a professor of church history at Mid-American Reform University. He writes, I would argue that the preacher has done his job, his best job, not when the hearers are amazed at the cleverness of someone who could get what the preacher got from the text, but when the folk have the sense that they too, given sufficient time and gifts, could have come up with the same truths from the text. In other words, I could have done that myself. I want to give you an example from my own life of this. I was incredibly blessed to be brought up in a denomination in Northern Ireland where there were many men who preached with great simplicity. One such was a man called Dr. Adam Lockridge. He was an older man when I was a young man. He was a father of the church, a man of considerable learning. He served in various evangelical bodies in the United Kingdom, an author, and a real scholar. He's a principal of the Theological Seminary. He was my professor of homiletics when I was at seminary. And I can remember him well, small seminary, and every Friday afternoon, uh, one of the students would preach. And the first time I preached, Dr. Lockridge was sat in the horseshoe with everybody else, and you would preach, and then everybody would critique your sermon. And he was sitting there, and there was a row of books behind. And as I was preaching, he brought out one of these books, and he flicked through it, and he brought out a hanky, and he blew his nose, and he was juggling coins. And I thought, what is, what, what's going on here? But then with distinctness in three sentences, he clearly spoke to the failures of my preaching, the needs of my preaching, and the encouragements that I needed to address. Well, Dr. Blockridge ministered in a small town on the north coast of Northern Ireland, not far from where I grew up. And there's a man who would worship in the congregation on occasion. His name was William. And William was a man who delivered coal. He had a lorry, bags of coal, and he'd take it around the community. And one evening, Dr. Lockridge asked William, William, you do a bit of preaching. William preached in the local mission halls. He says, when do you get time to prepare? William said, well, Dr. Lockridge, I just take one of your sermons and I'll polish it up a wee bit. <laughs> and I do my best. And Dr. Lockridge, I never heard him personally tell the story, but I've heard others relay the story, would throw back his head and with real laughter would say, if William can take one of my sermons and polish it up, then I'm doing well. The scholar par excellence had a sermon polished up by the coal man. Now I want to turn to the second dimension of my assignment, to speak to the issue of what difference does having confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture make to preaching? And for that, I turn your attention to the Word of God in Romans chapter 10. I see five things in this passage which speak to how confidence in the Scriptures enables and facilitates preaching in the Scriptures. First, the preacher's position. Second, the preacher's purpose. Third, the primacy of preaching. Fourth, the power of the Holy Spirit. And fifth, the power of or the person and work of the Lord Jesus. First, the preacher's position. And remember, we're looking here at how confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture enables the man of God to preach with simplicity, which pleases Christ. So this isn't just a statement of what the pastor is. We're looking at how his confidence in the sufficiency of God's Word enables him to preach with simplicity and clarity that pleases Jesus Christ. For a man to preach with simplicity, he must understand and deeply appreciate his position. I believe that the want of such understanding and appreciation causes men to fall into simplistic preaching. Paul asks a question here in Romans chapter 10, verse 15. It's one of a series of rhetorical questions. He says, how are they to 
preach unless they are sent. Preachers are men who are sent. They are not men who decide of their own volition to go. That word sent means to clothe and to equip with authority. Once a body of elders recognizes and after appropriate testing accepts that a man has been called by God to give his life to this ministry of word and prayer and they lay hands on him, that man at that moment receives authority from Christ, the head of the church, and the mediator king over all creation. It is invested authority. It is authority like no other authority in heaven or on earth. I believe that this is grossly misunderstood today. I believe that many believe that when a man comes to preach, he is just doing so because he thinks that's what he would like to do for good reasons. He does it because the church wants him, because they need a preacher. But the true sign of a man called of God is that he has an authority from Christ the King and head to do so. The mark of the false prophet in the Old Testament was that they acted of their own volition. They were not sent. As Jeremiah speaks of the false prophets of his day and declares in chapter 23, 18 and 21, for who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and hear his word, or he has paid attention to his word and listened? God says, I did not send the prophet, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. Too many today stand before people and they prophesy without any authority. And they are doing damage, serious damage to men and women's lives. While the preacher is not a prophet, he doesn't stand and receive original direct revelation from God. The fact is that without divine sending, no matter what a man may call himself, he is not a true messenger of the living God, and he has no right to expound the Word of God. He has no authority to do so, and if necessary, he must be stopped. The man of God sent by Christ, regardless of how impressive or otherwise he may be, no matter the level of gifts that he has received from God, if God sends him, then he is clothed with authority, charged with the most awesome responsibility known to man, and required to render the highest possible service to his fellow man. That is the bringing of the Master's message of eternal life to a fallen world. And please do not understand me. I'm talking about the preacher owning an unshakable sense of his God-given authority while holding an equally impregnable sense of his own humility. C.K. Chesterton, the 20th century apologist, wrote about what he called the dislocation of humility. He said, what we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition. Modesty has settled upon the organ of conviction where it was never meant to be. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. Human or humble and self-forgetting you must always be, but diffident and apologetic about the gospel? Never. There are too many men today who are undoubting of the truth, but see themselves as God's gift to the church. And that is where the preacher is to be, in his mind and in his heart, knowing that he acts with the authority of God. He speaks 
to men using the very breathed out words of God as God's messenger, as God's herald, as God's stead. When the man of God has absolutely clarity about that, then he is a man set apart and sent by God. He knows he has authority from Christ to declare the infallible and errant word of the living God, and simplicity will mark his ministry. He'll be so filled with that sense of authority that he'll never feel the need to pander to people, seeking their approval and their reassurance. He will be so singularly and jealously focused on Jesus Christ and guarding the office that Christ has given to him that he will allow no thought of himself to get in the way, and he will preach as such. The second of the five things in this passage which speaks to how confidence in the sufficiency of God's Word enables and facilitates simplicity in preaching as a preacher's purpose. Paul says in Romans 10, 15, that they are to preach. But what does it mean to preach? How are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? To preach is to herald. I'm sure you've heard that before. Having been given the stewardship of the gospel, having been blessed with the privilege of being entrusted with the message exhaled by God in His Word, having been charged with the custodianship of the mystery of God, the preacher must herald, he must proclaim, he must declare nothing less and nothing more than what he has received. He has no right to generate any original thoughts. He has no right to declare to anyone what he thinks or does not think. That's not his purview. He has no liberty to do so. He has one task and one task alone, the task assigned to him by the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that is to declare as his ambassador his word. That's the simple remit, clear and unequivocal. And what is that message? Verse 15, it's the gospel of good news. Literally, it's the good news of good things. Paul uses a double phrase here. He identifies the good news, and he underlines it by saying, of good things. In other words, it's outstanding good news. It's imaginably good news. It's unbelievable good news. And as Paul said to the Miletus in Acts 20, you know how I lived among you, how I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, and that whole counsel is the good news. And friends, note, it's news. It's not a suggestion. It's not counsel. It's not advice. It's a record of what God has done. As Professor James Stewart writes, preaching exists not for the propagation of views, opinions, and deals, but the proclamation of the mighty acts of God. The man that preaches the good news is not sharing what he thinks. He's proclaiming what God has done. And what has God done? Well, that wonderful sentence of 202 words, the second longest sentence in the New Testament of the Apostle Paul in the letter he wrote to the church at Ephesus, tells us that God chose us before the foundation of the world so that we would be holy and blameless in His sight. Isn't that astonishing news? That we who are dead in our trespasses and sins would be standing in the presence of the living God, holy and blameless. It's the truth that God predestined us in love for adoption for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will in the praise of His glorious grace. It's the astonishing reality that He has blessed us and the Beloved by redeeming us, buying us back. And what was the price that was paid? By the Savior's blood. It's the unspeakable fact that we have been forgiven of our trespasses and sins according to the riches of His grace that He has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will, 
salvation in Christ. It's the unbelievable, glorious truth that we have obtained an inheritance that is sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, our guarantee of that inheritance. It's the good news. It's the good news of God's love. Love from another place. 1 John 3, 1. Love from an infinitely holy God. Love to a horrendously wicked, perverse, rebellious, sinful man. Love from God, who is love that has made us love known through the sending of His Son to be the propitiation, the wrath bearer for ourselves and our sins. Love that saw the Lord Jesus Christ, who being in the form of God did not account equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being bound, found in human form, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the message that the preacher has brought to bring to the people of God. Paul says in verse 9 of chapter 10, if we confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised you from the dead, you will be saved. That's good news. He says in verse 10, For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That's good news. Verse 13, Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. That's good news. And this is the news of salvation through death in Jesus Christ and through His work at Calvary. The good news of redemption from our deadness and our trespasses and our sins. The good news of the breaking of our bondage to sin. The good news of the breaking of the relationship that we had where formerly we walked in the course of the world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in the work and the sons of disobedience. This is the good news. This is the good news that needs to be declared, needs to be proclaimed, needs to be declared from a man who understands that he has authority to do so and understands that he has a purpose to do so. Saved by the blood of the Lamb. Saved in our bodies. Saved in our souls. Saved for joy. Saved for holiness. Saved for the fulfillment in this life and for endless abundant life in heaven with God eternity. What good news is that? We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were bound to Satan. We were doomed to a lost eternity. We were by nature objects of the holy wrath of God. And there we are, reconciled to God, at peace with God, destined to be with God for all eternity. What good news. The preacher who is summoned by heaven to proclaim and declare and herald that good news. The man who understands this, He's experienced in his own life. He'll never digress into some form of vainglorious, banal sermonizing. He's never going to trade the good news for look at who I am and how good I am. The third of five things in this passage which speaks to us how confidence in the sufficiency of God's Word enables and facilitates preaching is the preeminence and the priority of preaching. How are they to call on him whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Now let's be clear. I'm not saying that the good news of the gospel cannot be spread through any other means but preaching. That's not true. The New Testament shows very clearly and very directly that men and women lived out, shared, and gossiped the gospel in different ways. They took risks to do so. They were daring in their efforts to do so. They shared the message of the good news with their families and friends, and God used it. But let's also be clear. The Word of God and centuries of church history tell us that the preeminent way that God, God, not man, God has chosen through which people are brought to the kingdom is through the preaching of the good news. The compassion of the Lord Jesus for the people speaks to the preeminent need for and priority of the good news. Matthew 9, 36 and 38, we read, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, 
he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Laborers do what? What do laborers do? Proclaim the kingdom of the good news. What did Jesus do when he had compassion on the crowd? He preached the kingdom. The king of kings preached the gospel of the kingdom. He preached his life and his death. Why? Because that is a means that the Father has chosen by which men and women of all ages, dead in their trespasses and sins, are made alive. And when Jesus sent out the 72, Luke 10, 9, what did he tell them to do? To preach the kingdom of God has come near. And when Jesus took the disciples into the Mount of Olives on the night in which he was betrayed in that phenomenal chapter in John 15, he says to them, you did not choose me, but I chose you to go and bear fruit and fruit that would abide. And how was that fruit to be gleaned? It was to be gleaned through the preaching of the good news. And what did the apostles give themselves in the early church to the preaching of the good news and prayer? They would not wait on the tables because that would have taken their time away. And what did Paul say to Timothy, 2 Timothy 4.2, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is a judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Christ preached the kingdom. He sent out the 72 to preach the kingdom. He said to the apostles, preach the kingdom. The apostles preached the kingdom. They said, we cannot serve on tables because we're preaching the kingdom. Paul wrote to Timothy and said, you will preach the kingdom. You will preach the good news. Why? Because that is the means that God has chosen for the salvation of the lost and the sanctification of the saints. And when we lose sight of that, we're lost. We're lost. How are they to call on him they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? The man of God that believes this will never have a dalliance with anything that comes out of his own mind and heart. He will not allow his own thoughts to distract him from the absolute necessity, the imperative of declaring the whole counsel of God to dying men and dying women. How can he do otherwise? How can he do otherwise? Paul says, how are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? And who are the they? It's those whom Christ looked upon and had compassion for. It's they who are lost. It's those of your friends and your neighbors who have no hope. They're the they. It's not some abstract entity. It may be your husband, it may be your wife, it may be a child or a grandchild your next-door neighbor, the person you have that hobby with, the person you work with, they are the they. How are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? The privilege for me to be this conference, it phenomenally is. The reality is, are there not thousands and tens of thousands of people around us and they haven't believed and how are they going to call on him if they don't hear that's why the preacher proclaims Christ crucified and pleads with the lost to be reconciled to God Richard Baxter writes in reformed pastor I marvel how I can preach slightly and coldly how I can let men alone in their sins and that I do not go to them and beseech them for the Lord's sake to repent. However, they take it and whatever pains or trouble it will cost me. I seldom come out of the pulpit, but my 
conscience smiteth me that I have been no more serious and fervent. It accuses me, not so much for want of human organs or ornaments or elegance, not for letting fall an uncomely word, but it asketh me, how couldst thou speak of life and death with such a heart? Shouldn't thou not weep over such a people? Should thou not heart be torn, torn by a want of this? Shouldn't thou not cry aloud and show them their transgression and entreat and beseech them as for life and death? How can a man get into a pulpit and preach the inerrant and fallible good news of God and not care that there sits before him sinners bound for a lost eternity. Bacter says, my conscience accuses me. Was Baxter alone? Men want to give themselves to preaching and churches will hear them. But do they want to hear the good news? the whole counsel of God. That's the purpose. That's the message. The fourth of five things in this passage which speaks to our confidence in the sufficiency of God's Word enables and facilitates simplicity in preaching is the promise of the Spirit. Paul says in verse 13 that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. What a phenomenal promise. Not that some, not in many, not most, not majority, but everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Every single human being who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And as preachers of the gospel are sent out with the good news, understanding that the task is given to them by God in Christ, what a glorious thing to have ringing in their ears. And that's what Paul preached, isn't it, on the day of Pentecost, recorded in Acts 2.21. And he preached and he quotes there the prophecy of Joel about the coming of the Spirit. And Paul takes that up. Peter preaches in the day of Pentecost. Paul picks it up now and he says concerning this, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord, they will be saved. And where is that? That's a statement from Joel. The Spirit is coming. And the man of God who has authority in Christ, the man of God who comes understanding that authority, the man of God who comes Declaring the purpose, the man who comes, understanding the priority and premise, premise of or preeminence of preaching, this man comes and he comes in the power of the Spirit of God. He doesn't just come and deliver his own words. He doesn't just come declaring what he thinks. He comes to men who are blind to the truth. He comes to men whose hearts are at enmity with God. He comes to men and women who are dead in their trespasses and sins. But there is a power. There's a dynamite. I grew up in Northern Ireland as a young man. I knew the power of dynamite. I saw it. I heard it. And I know you laughed. But it was nothing to laugh at. Nothing to laugh at. But there's no dynamite, no semtex like the power of the gospel. None. For in that power, there's a power of the Spirit. There's a power that's unleashed, as Paul writes to the church at Corinth, and he talks about that power, how the preaching of the cross for those who are called the Jews and the Gentiles, there is that power. There's a demonstration of the power in the man of God who understands that power, will have a confidence in the Word of God, what means he cannot in any way do anything other but preach the living Word of the living God. Because he knows if he strays from that word, he's straying from that power because that power comes through that word. It doesn't come through his eloquence or his articulation or his uh, sophistry or his, his, his ability to use words. It comes because of the word. When the word is preached, then the Spirit of Christ comes and he works. That's why sermons are not artistic creations. They're not to be critically evaluated for their merits. Sermons are never an end in themselves. They are a means to God's end. Whatever purpose God sends it forth, we're not to muse and gaze at a sermon or to sit under the Word. 
as it would come to us and cut to our hearts. And the man of God understands that there's a power. There's a power in the Spirit's work, a regenerating power, a renewing power, an eliminating power. The heart that is dead is made alive. The mind that is dead is renewed. The will that is against God is brought to God. The war is at an end. There is reconciliation and there is peace. And that's because of the work of the Spirit. And when the man of God who preaches understands that he preaches in authority, he preaches with a purpose, he preaches because of the priority of the Word of God, because of the lost world, and he understands the power of the Spirit. He's not a mighty man. He's a weak clay vessel. But in the hands of Almighty God, what he declares, there's nothing in the earth like it. And finally, the fifth of the five things in this passage that should give confidence is because of the person. Because you see the position being sent. Men are sent by who? They're sent by Christ. What is the purpose that they have? They're to preach. But what are they to preach? They're to preach Christ. And what is the preeminence and the priority of the Word of God about? It's about Christ. It's about His preaching. Verse 14, the translation that I'm using uses a preposition of in the 14th verse. How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? That's not correct. I'm not a Greek scholar, but I know enough and have been told enough to know that's not correct. What that says is, and how are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? You see, when a man of God gets to his feet and preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit, the people aren't hearing him. They're hearing Christ. How are they to believe in him whom they have never heard? It's the presence of Christ in the preaching of God's word that changes lives. What a phenomenal thought. Isn't that astonishing? does not elevate the whole reality of what you're experiencing this morning into another dimension entirely. That there's some of you sitting here this morning, and you're not hearing this voice. You're hearing the voice of the Lord God Almighty in the person of His Son. And He is speaking to you this morning, and He's speaking to you about salvation and life and death. And the Spirit of God is at work in your heart, and you're hearing Him. That's why this human form and this mind and this heart are of no use to you beyond this exercise this morning. Because the only voice that you should crave to hear is the voice of Jesus Christ. How, how are you going to believe in Him whom you've never heard if you don't hear Him? And how do you hear Him? You hear Him through the humble preaching of a sinner saved by grace, a man broken and wasted, a wretched man, as Paul said as he is, and as all men are. It's a terrible indictment upon the name of Christ when any preacher is raised to a position where he's deemed as though he is significant and important. He has no importance beyond his authority in Christ. He has no importance beyond the purpose given to him to preach the gospel. He has no importance beyond his, beyond his understanding of the priority. He has no importance beyond his understanding of the promise of the Spirit. He has no importance at all because it's Christ who preaches. Yes, his feet may be beautiful, as Paul writes here, but they're beautiful in Christ. How we need men today across this nation Men who know their God-given authority to preach Christ. Men who know the purpose to preach the good news. Men who know the preaching is of the utmost importance. And men who will preach with prayerful expectation of the work of the Holy Spirit. And men who will look to and follow Christ alone as they preach. Are you convinced of the authority of a man called to preach that it's in Christ? 
Are you convinced of his purpose that it's to preach the gospel? Are you convinced that the preeminence and priority of preaching should dominate the preacher's life? Are you convinced that he has to be a man who's on his knees seeking the power of the Holy Spirit as he enters the pulpit on a Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday as he prepares the Word of God? And are you convinced of his need to understand that he is merely a mouthpiece? It is Christ who is present and proclaimed. Are you convinced of that? If you are, then you must pray for it. Let me conclude with why this is so important. As an exclusive a cappella psalm singing Presbyterian, I thought I would end with, end with a hymn. John Wesley writes, wrote a hymn about the miners who come under conviction when he preached the gospel. Men who lived in terrible conditions. Men who were broken in many ways in their bodies and minds. He says, Madness and misery, ye count all your life beneath. And nothing great or good can see of gloriousness in our death. As only born to grieve, beneath your feet we lie, and utterly condemned we live, and unlamented die. So wretched and obscure, the men whom ye despise, so foolish, impotent, and poor, above your scorn we rise. We through the Holy Ghost can witness better things, for he whose blood is all our boast hath made us priests and kings. Riches unsearchable in Jesus' love we know, and pleasure springing from the well of life our souls overflow. The Spirit we receive of wisdom, grace, and power, and always sorrowful we live, rejoicing evermore. Angels our servants are, men coal miners. Angels our servants are, and keep in all our ways, and in their watchful hands they bear the sacred souls of grace. And to the heavenly bliss they all our steps attend, and God himself our Father is with Jesus as our friend. With him we walk in white. Men whose clothes were filled with, with coal suit, their faces covered in coal. With him we walk in white. We in his image shine. Our robes are robes of glorious light, of righteousness divine. And all the kings of earth with pity we look down and claim in virtue of our birth a never-ending crown. That's why man must know his authority. He must know his purpose. He must know the preeminence. He must know the power of the Spirit. He must know the presence of Christ. Because dead sinners will walk with Jesus. Dead sinners will be crowned in the eternal glory. That's why simplicity in preaching is so eternally important.